this is a White Ridge Baptist podcast. It is only by the Spirit of God that we can sing those words and do that kind of thing, such a surrender. And um, in some cases, God comes upon us and he does that in, a, in an instance and sometimes it takes many years. We've been in the book of Acts and uh, we're going to be studying further in Acts chapter 2 this morning. Last week, we look at, looked at what took place on the day of Pentecost and what the significance of that day was. We discovered that it was a watershed day because it was uh, the day dividing the Old Covenant and the New Covenant relationship of the Holy Spirit with His people on earth. We discovered that it was a day of reversal, that the Tower of Babel was reversed and that God united His people. Though they spoke different languages, they could hear the gospel from Galilean preachers in their own language. It was a day of fulfillment as the prophecy of Joel was fulfilled and that, that everyone, the, the Spirit of God was poured out on, on all who called upon the name of the Lord. And Peter was able to stand up and he was able to say this, which Joel was talking about hundreds of years ago, is that. This is that. And um, so God poured out his Spirit. And Joel's prophecy and his outpouring of God was was an indiscriminate outpouring. It was, in other words, all, all believers were prophesying and all believers could hear the Word of God in their own language. There was an indiscrimination about the fulfillment of this prophecy. And so it meant that it was indiscriminate in ethnicity. It said all flesh, all people, verse 17 of Acts 2. It was indiscriminate, indiscriminate in gender, says your, your sons and your daughters, both men and women. It was indiscriminate in age. that Your young men will do this and your old men will do that. And it was indiscriminate in socioeconomic divisions. Even on my servants, he says, uh, both men and women, God will pour out his spirit. So God sent a message to the house of Israel. That day, God sent a message to the world that uh, in his family but united by His Spirit in praise of His Son to the glory of the Father, that no one is excluded based on anything like ethnicity, gender, age, place in society, that the gospel, the evangel, the good news of Jesus Christ is for all people, and He will use all people to reach the ends of the earth. He will use all people. That's incredible how the Great Commission keeps on popping up all throughout Scripture. And so this morning, I'd like to answer two questions. One is, who is the gospel for? And secondly, what does the gospel teach? And uh, we're going to be looking at Peter's uh, scripture in a moment in Acts 2. But first, I want to ask, answer the question, who is the gospel for? Samuel Escobar, a Latin American theologian, wrote a book in 2003 called The New Global Mission, The Gospel from Everywhere to Everyone. The title was partly inspired by a Pakistani author who wrote in 1990 a book by the, an author by the name of Michael Nazir Ali, and his book was called From Everywhere to Everywhere. What do these books have in common, and what is this theme that keeps on surfacing in literature like that? Well, the theme is that we are living in a time when the mission of Jesus has been imparted to people from all around the globe 
And so it is harder to divide between those who are sending nations and those who are receiving nations. The gospel is going from everywhere to everyone. We see it happening. The immigration itself that is taking place on planet Earth is indicative of God's strategy of fulfilling the Great Commission. Uh, I read just recently that one out of every five Canadians was, not, was born somewhere else. One out of every five Canadians. There are more people on the move on planet Earth right now than there ever has been in all of history. Now, that, God's got something to do with this. God is at work in mixing up the, the nations and in people sharing Jesus Christ with those. In Acts chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, we, we studied this last week. We didn't get a ch chance to talk about the fact that of these 15 or so nations and peoples in Acts 2, 9 and 10, those that came from other parts of the Roman Empire or the Parthian Empire, every one of these places and these peoples that are listed are, had Jewish communities that had been transplanted there earlier, living there and, and traveling back to Jerusalem annually for the Passover or for Pentecost. But how did they get scattered? Requires a little bit of a history lesson. You need to go back at least to 722 B.C. when the northern kingdom of Israel comes upon the, the uh, or the Assyrians come upon them and, and they take them into captivity and, and scatter many of them uh, throughout Assyria. In, in 586, many years later, the, the Babylonian Empire takes over, destroys Jerusalem and takes captive many Israelites and takes them and resettles them in parts of Babylon. You see, a displaced people are easier to manage when they're not on native soil. And that's why when we have immigrants and refugees that come to Canada, they're very vulnerable people, and we need to minister to them. Then later on in 539 B.C., the, Mer the per Persian and Mede Empire is, is rising to power, overcoming Babylon. Cyrus, the king of Persia, gives liberty for Jews to return to, to Jerusalem and to rebuild the walls we see in Ezra and Nehemiah, this history. But not all of them go back. Some of them are already very comfortable. They've, they've developed their, their religion. They've built their synagogues. They've practiced their religion. They've, they've got communities. They've been there a few generations, and so they stay where they are in the diaspora. In 331, Alexander the Great comes along, and he spreads the Greek influence throughout the entire world. And he dies a little while later and leaves the entire kingdom in his general's hands, and then later on, the Roman Empire rises, and when we see the time of Christ, the day of Pentecost, Rome, of course, is the primary world-dominating force. Now, what's happening in this history? As the rise and the fall of empires take place, what's happening to the Jewish people where they're resettled into all kinds of places in the world, and they stay there? Many of them stay there, and they develop their world there. And so when it comes to the time of Christ, when it comes to the time of going back to Jerusalem for these festivals, we find that at that time, 83% is estimated, 83% of Jewish people lived outside of Palestine, and just 17% lived inside Jerusalem and its vicinity. It's incredible what God was up to in history. Now, what happens to a people who are displaced? Well, they have to learn the language, and they have to learn the culture, and that's what these people did. They learned the languages of all the places that they went to. 
and they, they learned the culture. And then in addition to that, when, when Alexander the Great and this great Hellenization, this Greek influence took over, they had Greek culture and influence as well. And so we see that what happens is that uh, they, they have to adapt. Incidentally, let me put in a little commercial here. This coming Wednesday night, English Conversation Circle starts back up. If you're interested in becoming part of that, you're welcome to join us, talk to the church office. That's what we're about. We're helping people learn the language and adapt to the culture. That's what we need to do. And so what, what is happening to these people, what's happened in missiological terms, is they've become bicultural. An author by the name of David Boyd has written a book called You Don't Have to Cross the Ocean to Reach the World. If you want to know more about this biculturalism, I've got some books here. Come up and they're free. Just, just read it and it'll, it'll tell you more about how he believes that in the book of Acts, God used bicultural people to spread the gospel to the world at that time. And that he continues to use bicultural people today to recognize that that's how the gospel gets out there. And bicultural does not mean that you need to go somewhere else to, to become bicultural. You can become bicultural right here every Wednesday night at English Conversation Circles or getting to know your neighbor next door and appreciating other culture, other values, and so on. And so we see this incredible thing happen. So the Jews of the diaspora are mentioned in chapter 2, 9, and 10, already adapted. They've learned the language, etc. And they hear on the day of Pentecost something that amazes and perplexes them. They don't get it. And Peter stands up. He preaches the gospel along with the others. And they all hear the wonders of God in their own language. And they, many of them come to Christ. Many of that 3,000 were from all these regions, and, and they sent, they're sent back after Pentecost, and the gospel is already going out. What a brilliant plan God had. Let me say something as an aside, if we want to be a good witness to our culture. Um, maybe we need to ask God to do something extraordinary that amazes and perplexes people that has no human explanation that God will be the only explanation for. I think often we don't, we don't believe in that way. We don't ask God for those things, and so the culture around us is not perplexed, amazed. They're not looking for answers. They're seeing things that we can do. They could do too. And so that should set us a praying. So Peter stands up with the other 11. He explains to them what's going on. He uses the prophet Joel. We talked about that last week. He said that, that we're living in the last days now, folks. The last days began with the day of Pentecost, and it will end with the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everything in between that time, which we are living in now still, is characterized by verse 21, that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's a true statement yet, but there's coming a day when that will not be the case. That verse will no longer apply after the great and glorious coming of the Lord, that day of the Lord, which coincides somehow with the coming of Jesus Christ. And so what Jesus Christ has done on earth is he's, he's spread out his, his, poured out his spirit on, on all his people, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, and the spirit of God comes upon them, and they become his witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, and to the ends of the earth, just like Mission Fest is all about this weekend. 
and to get the job done and to be the witness in every generation, among every people in every corner of the world, Christ needs to be made known. And that's what God's plan is all about. And so now, now we come to the scripture of the day, and if you would open your Bibles to Acts chapter 2, I'd like to read a portion of Peter's sermon. Acts chapter 2. I told my life group on Thursday night that I'm going to plagiarize a sermon this morning. And they were a little concerned until I told them it was going to be Peter's sermon. And so uh, in Acts chapter 2, why don't you uh, open your Bibles to Acts chapter 2. And we're going to begin in verse 22 to read this incredible spirit-anointed sermon. 3,000 were added to the church that day. Let's stand together as we listen to God's word. Picking up the sermon in verse 22. Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by make, nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body will live in hope because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life, and you will fill me with joy in your presence. Brothers, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was ahead, he spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to the grave, nor did his body see decay. For God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of this fact. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear for David did not ascend to heaven, yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let Israel, all Israel, be assured of this, that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. And when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart, and they said to Peter and the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. And with many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. May God bless his word. You may be seated. What an incredible moment this was. This was Peter's first sermon. That blows me away. I, I remember I was, I think, 17 when I preached my first sermon. It, it was at Hanover Baptist Church in southeastern Ontario. And it was accompanied by miracles as well. I want you to know that. The miracle was that they let me finish it. <laughs> and afterwards, they didn't excommunicate me. But here is this incredible sermon of Peter's. There's seven sermons in the book of Acts by Peter. There's five by Paul, 15 in total. 
It's an incredible document with all this incredible preaching going on during this incredible 30 years after the ascension of Christ. Let's take a look at uh, some of this sermon. It's got only 569 words. I'm sure some of you could think, why wouldn't the preacher here in our church be able to do it in 569 words? And then I add verse 40. Look at verse 40. It says, with many other words. Okay, so that's a fill-in-the-blank statement there. Well, that's the policy I adopt, is the many other words. Let's answer the question, what does the gospel teach? And uh, to do so, let's talk about what it does not teach. Mark Deaver has written a book called The Gospel and Personal Evangelism, and I'm going to share four things that he says and then add a few more. He says the, the gospel is not, the good news is not simply that we're okay, that we just need to to uh, help each other get along in this world. Christianity is not a religious therapy session where we sit around and help each other feel good about ourselves. You know, the book, I'm okay, you're okay. Um, it's, it's fact is we're not okay. And there's reasons why we're not okay. We all have been created in the image of God, but that image has been broken and we're not okay. And God has addressed that not okayness in His mercy. And so Christianity is not um, anesthetizing us to life's pain. It's not sort of grinning and bearing it and trying to get to the end of life. It's about becoming a new creation. Not a self-help, not a fix-up-the-old thing, but rather a new creature in Christ Jesus is what God talks about. And so it's not simply that we're okay. Uh, secondly, the good news is not simply that God is love. God is love, but He is so much more than love. And the kind of love that He is is not a sentimental love. And so His love is the very reason why He offers the solution for our brokenness, our rebellion, our victimization, our in inability, and so on. Children will sometimes say to their parents, if you loved me, you'd let me, you know. It's kind of like uh, that with God. We often say, God, why don't you let me have this or whatever it is? And uh, God, of course, is an incredibly, infinitely loving parent who recognizes that sometimes he has to say no in his love. Thirdly, good news is not simply that Jesus wants to be our friend or our example. I remember seeing a video won't name the organization, but I remember seeing a video of children evangel being evangelized in this massive concert. And the woman up front said, how many of you want to have Jesus as your best friend? And all the hands went up. Every child wanted to have Jesus as their best friend. What's wrong with that, What's wrong with that kind of evangelism? Well, the fact is, is that you can't choose your best friend, can you? Think about that. You don't get to choose your best friend. It's either mutual or it doesn't happen. Best friends become best friends because both of them want to be best friends. And there's something that stands between you and the holy God of eternity for you to have him as your best friend. He needs to receive you, not just you receive him. And there's a thing called sin that separates a holy God from receiving you as his best friend. That has to be addressed. And so Jesus Christ came to address it so that you could be friends with God. But you cannot just presume to raise your hand, pray the prayer, 
and be everything okay. We need to confess our sin. That means you need to agree with God about the verdict on you. That's, that's an important step. You can't share the good news without understanding there's bad news first. Otherwise, the good news isn't really needed for good because there's no bad news in the backdrop. Second, or fourthly, the good news is, is not simply that we should live rightly. The good news of Christianity is not simply live a good life, go to church, live by the golden rule, be a nice person. The gospel is not an additive to your best efforts. It's not a vitamin supplement. It's not a spiritual steroid. It's not, you know, you're almost there, but here, he'll help you out. No. The gospel says we cannot and we do not please God apart from faith in his son. And so the gospel says your righteousness, the best that you can raise to God in your life, as long as you live it here on earth, the best that you can raise to God in righteousness is still in his terms called filthy rags. And so only by faith in the righteousness of Jesus can you be restored. The good news is also, in addition to these four, the good news is also not just the testimony. There are many testimonies that are shared that don't share the good news. There's, the good news is not just social action or good deeds or an apologetic debate. All these things can occur, and the, new, the good news can sometimes be vacant or not present. So what is the good news according to Peter's sermon? Again, just looking at this text, let's talk about four things that we can learn from Peter. First of all, Peter understood his audience. Knowing the people that you are sharing with is a very important part of it. In verse 14, he calls them fellow Jews, 22, men of Israel, 29, brothers, 37, all Israel. Peter is very clearly talking to people that he loves and knows and is able to speak their language with. He's therefore quoting lots of Old Testament references. We don't see that happening all the way through Acts. We see that in Paul, in Acts 17, when he's in Athens, he doesn't quote any Old Testament scripture. He's now speaking to Greeks who don't know the Old Testament Hebrew Bible. So he quotes some local fellows. And since we also are called to talk to people of different backgrounds. We need to be loving them, knowing them, and speaking their language. Speaking their language must not be synonymous with thinking that we can dress up the gospel to, to sound or look differently. That's a danger. It's a danger that we try to uh, minimize the, the hard realities of what the gospel teaches. So at the center of the gospel, secondly, Peter emphasizes the cross and the resurrection as central for the forgiveness of sins. Take a look at verse 23 with me. It says, This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. The gospel at the center of it is the death and the resurrection of Jesus. You don't share the gospel unless you talk about Jesus died and Jesus living again. Verse 31, seeing what was ahead, David spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to the grave, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses to this fact. The NIV uses the word fact. And uh, the, the literal 
rendering would be, this Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses. But I think that the NIV using the word fact is a good way to describe it in today's language. Peter is saying, nobody can deny this. Just less than two months ago, you saw him crucified. This happened. We're witnesses. And the good news is that ultimately, this historical truth of his, of his crucifixion was followed by the historical truth of his resurrection that he now lives. You know, the whole world right now could be divided into two groups. There's a group of people in this world that say, no, Jesus did not rise. Jesus is not alive. You know, if we could find it, we could find it just like David. We could find his tomb as well. We could find his bones, his ashes. And there's the rest of us that believe indeed that you can search high and low on planet earth and you will not find the bones of Jesus Christ, the, the ashes, the remains. And, and that's a reality. And you either believe that reality or you don't believe it. And so when you and I are sharing with unbelievers and we want to share the gospel, the good news, that which is going to bring about salvation for those who will repent, uh, it has to include that this Jesus now lives. You have to be at least convinced that he lives. You don't have to convince them that he lives, but you have to be convinced that he lives and that he spoke to you this morning through his word, and that you spoke to him. You, if they think you're crazy when you share that with a friend, that's okay. But you need to testify that he is a living Savior. You ask me how I know he lives. What is that hymn, say, that song? You ask me how I know he lives. Okay, there's a few Baptists among us. <laughs> he lives within my heart. I know he lives. That's okay. You're testifying to the historical truth in your own experience of God the Spirit. I want to say next that Peter left room for the Holy Spirit to do the work of regeneration in the heart. Notice in this scripture in verse 37, it says, When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart, and they said to, the, to Peter and the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? I love this scripture. I have been encouraged by hearing some of you sort of feed back to me some of the stories that you've had in the last few weeks. I've had a few of you that have come to me, and ever since that Sunday, a few weeks ago, when I said to you, write the names of those awakening souls that God has put in your life and on your heart to pray for, write their name at the bottom of this piece of paper and put it in your Bible. I've had some of you that have come to me and you've shared instances. I just uh, recently, a, a woman came to me and said, you know, I, I started praying for this person and I, it was so easy to talk to them about the Lord. We were driving in the car and it just happened. And that never happened before in the years past. Is that coincidental that we start praying for an individual and God starts opening up opportunities and hearts? And so, you see, we want to see that happen. We want to see that multiplied out this congregation so that we become, as White Ridge Baptist Church, a culture of evangelism. But not in the power of the flesh, in the power of the Spirit. Notice that it says people were cut to the heart. The word means pricked or pierced or agitated violently. You see, it's the kind of thing that when it happens, they can't ignore it. If someone were able to reach inside your heart right now and agitate it violently, you could not try to pretend that life can go on just the way it always has. 
That's what God the Spirit does. We don't do that. God the Spirit does that. Jesus, the hound of heaven, when he gets a hold of a life, and under the hearing of the gospel that came from your lips and the conviction of the Holy Spirit that comes from within their hearts, the hound of heaven pursues that individual, pursues them, he corners them, he disarms them, he brings down their defenses, and as they lay in that corner broken and yielding up their weapons, they surrender to God. That's the way it works. It can happen in an instance, and it sometimes takes years to happen. Now, how did Peter know that they were cut to the heart, according to the text? How'd they know? Exactly. What do we need to do about this? They self-declare. They self-declare. They, they say... They go back to the very source of where they heard the message to begin with, and they self-declare. You know what? If you're in the practice of being known as one who knows Jesus and speaks to people about the condition of their souls, when God the Spirit cuts them to the heart, where are they going to go? They're going to come back to you, and they're going to say, what do we do? I can't go on like this. What do we do? Friends, we need to talk it up. Through prayers, through witness, through circumstances, God will bring people to the crossroads. <clears throat> we dare not view witnessing as our efforts to convince and persuade someone against their own will, and God stands by watching us do our work. We rather should see witnessing as us doing our best in faulty language and broken, jerky motion to share Jesus with someone and then us stand back and let God do his work. You see, that's the way it works. And sometimes it means just developing that spiritual intuition. And in response, Peter clarified, finally, the, Peter clarified what the people needed to do in response to God. He says, repent and be baptized. That word repent is meaning turn, turn from what you have in your mind. It means literally a change of mind, but it doesn't mean just the mental ascent, change of mind. It actually has this idea of a complete reorientation. I once believed that Jesus died. A couple months ago, some in this crowd were saying, crucify him, crucify him, doesn't deserve to live. Now they're calling out to this same Jesus, give me life, give me forgiveness, I believe in you. That's the reorientation. There are people in this world today that do believe Jesus really didn't rise from the dead, and they're going to come to a place in their hearts because of the experience of the Holy Spirit that they do believe Jesus lives. He is the living God, and they have an accountability factor before him one day. That's the reality. That's repentance. And then baptism, normally the twin demands of the gospel John Stott speaks of are repent and believe. But in this case, Peter says, repent and be baptized. The believing was in the baptism. Every time there's a baptism, there's a funeral that takes place. That's why we witness someone going down under the water. The funeral is taking place. They're dead. They're buried. And they rise up to newness of life. That's the picture of the gospel. That's what Jesus does. With every person. And then Peter goes on, and with many other words, he shares. Many other words. Can I tell you a story? 
before we conclude our time and gather around the Lord's table. I want to tell you a true story that happened many years ago. And it was to a man by the name of John Harper, who grew up in a Christian home in Glasgow, Scotland, in 1872. He was born. At 14 years of age, he became a Christian himself and began to tell others about Jesus. At the age of 17, he was already preaching on street corners in his village. And after five or six years of doing that, he was... He was noticed by a man named Reverend E.A. Carter of the Baptist Pioneer Mission in London. He invited him to come to London, and instead of having to work in the mines and try to preach on the side, he, he would give him full time to, to work in preaching the gospel. And, and so John Harper did that and, and began his own church. Started with 25 people, and 13 years later, at the age of 24, he had uh, 500 people in his church. He was married during that time, and uh, they had a little child named Nana. But his wife took ill and died, and so he was left with just his daughter and himself. And while pastoring the church in London, Moody Church in Chicago got wind of him, and they asked him to come over for a series of meetings. He went over to Chicago, had these meetings, and went back. And then a few years later, they asked him to come back again. The year was 1912. And so he got on a ship at Southampton, he took the voyage across to America, and on the way he just had Nana, his little six-year-old, and a, a, a niece as well. And what happened after this, we know from only two sources, two sources. One is Nana herself, this daughter at age six at the time, who died in 1986 at the age of 80. And she remembered that her father woke her up one night, a few nights into the journey, it was about midnight. He said that the ship that they had been on it had hit an iceberg. Harper told Nana that another ship was just about there to rescue, rescue them. But as a precaution, he was going to put her on a lifeboat with her cousin who had accompanied them. And so Harper would wait until the other ship arrived. The rest of the story, of course, is well known. Little Nana and her cousin were saved. The ship that they were on was called the Titanic. And the only way we know what happened to John Harper is that because in a prayer meeting in Hamilton, Ontario, a few months later, a young Scotsman stood up with tears rolling down his cheeks, and he shared the extraordinary story of how he was converted. He explained that he had been on the Titanic the night it struck the iceberg. He had clung to a piece of floating debris in freezing waters, and suddenly he said a wave brought a man near him. His name was John Harper. He too was holding on to a piece of debris and wreckage. And he called out to me in the dark, Man, are you saved? He said, No, I am not. He shouted back, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. The waves took Harper away from me. And then a little while later, he washed back beside me again. And he said to me, Man, are you saved now? And I said to him, no. And he said again, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. And then losing his hold on the wood, Harper sank. And there I was, alone in the night, with two miles of water underneath me. And that night, I trusted Jesus Christ as my Savior. I am John Harper's last convert. I felt compelled this morning that I need to share with you 
and give you the opportunity this morning, before we gather around the Lord's table, to come to know Jesus Christ today, to believe in Him yourself personally, to receive Him, maybe for the first time to understand forgiveness. In Galatians chapter 1, it says that Christ gave Himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age. In Galatians 4 and 5, he talks about how Jesus Christ has set us free from slavery to sin. And if any of us could do that ourselves, then Christ died in vain. But the fact is, we all need to be rescued. We all do. And so right now, if you have never made a personal confession of your sin, notice I didn't say your sins, but your sin your nature to God, if you've never agreed with God about your condition, if you've never turned it all over to Jesus because He's been pursuing you, if you've never done that, why don't you do that today? Why don't you do that right now? Maybe this week, someone that comes under the hearing of this message is going to die. Wouldn't it be wonderful if today was the day that they received Jesus so you might want to pray something like this. You might want to pray, Lord, I know I'm a sinner. And I know I need to be set free and I need to be rescued. And God, I believe that that is what you did for me at the cross. You died for my sin. The, the sin where I've been victimized and the sin where I've been rebellious. You died for me in my place. And I right now want to surrender my life to you. I believe in your death for me. I believe in your resurrection. And I believe that you are the living God. And so today I ask you to enter my life by your Holy Spirit. Wash away my sin. Forgive me. And make me someone new. In Jesus' name, amen.